should be good. Come on out, everybody's gonna get baptized. Really, more than anything, we want to. I want to just briefly go over why you're doing this, uh, because this is an incredible statement of faith. But it's also about your identification. I've I've shared before in church that baptism is more about identification than the the aspect of the water, and the idea is that you're being identified with Jesus Christ in His death. Romans uh, chapter six verse three says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And of course, Paul states this as a question like, this is obvious. It's kind of a rhetorical question. That's why we've been identified with Jesus and his death. We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so... The symbol of going under the water is dying, dying to self, dying to the world, dying to the, the, uh, the sinful nature. And the symbol of coming up out of the water is raised to life with Christ, raised to walk with him. And uh, certainly we know that, that over time we will stumble. It's not some magical experience that's happening, but it's a commitment from you to God that you want to be identified with Christ and walk with him and, and uh, have fellowship with him. And of course, it's also a public statement to all those who are watching in the church that, hey, I'm identified with Christ. It's, it's no longer just me living in the flesh, I'm with Jesus. Now, I know some of you guys have walked for a long time with Christ and are now getting baptized. And of course, we recognize that, your faith. Uh, and I wanna, I wanna also say this to you, that if you have walked with Christ for some time and you've waited to be baptized, I'm so glad you made the decision to get baptized because it really shows that you want to be obedient to him and because of the fact he commanded it that we should be baptized. So we'll dip you under the water and we'll bring you back up. Now, what do I want you thinking about? I don't want you thinking about the waves. I don't want you thinking about the water. I don't want you thinking about me. I want you thinking about what Jesus has done for you, that the promise of of life, freedom from sin, freedom from the old nature, and you come up out of that water, just hallelujah. Praise God. He's done this work for you, and that's why you've been out there in the first place, okay? Lord God, Father, we thank you that that uh, you've done this great work for us, and Lord, we thank you that you have blessed us in such a rich way with your mercy, your love, your forgiveness, your wonderful grace. And Lord, I pray for each and every one here today. I thank you for them. I thank you for their statement of faith. Lord, I thank you for what you've done in their life, what you've rescued them out of. And Lord, the plans that you have for them in the future. Bless them, Lord. Bless this time. And may we all bring glory to you that you saved such sinners as us and reconciled us to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you love the Lord Jesus? Do you know what he did for you? He died for you? Yeah, okay. We're going to dedicate you to the Lord, okay? We're going to ask God's blessing on your life. and But that also comes with your dad committing to raise you in the way of the Lord, okay? Okay, so you, do, you, do you agree to that? Okay. Lord God, Father, I pray for Jasmine, Lord. We ask your blessing on this one. Lord, how dear children are to you, Lord. And you say, let not anyone hinder a child from coming to you. So, Lord, we ask that you bless this little one. Lord, protect her. Put a hedge around her. Lord, may she know you and walk with you. Lord, may you bless the household that she's in as they commit to raising her in a way that is godly and that leads to you. And, Lord, we as a church also commit that we'll bless her, that we'll teach her your word. And we thank you, dear God, for her. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord. We thank you for this evening. We thank you for bringing us together. And Lord, how blessed we are that uh, we can come together in fellowship in the morning and we can come together in fellowship in the evening. And we have such a wonderful, I'm just so blessed by this fellowship. And I thank you, Lord God. And now we pray as we enter into your word that you might teach us and instruct us. May we find great treasures here and go deep in your word. And Lord, may you encourage our hearts. And teach us, Lord, 
let not one of us leave here the same way we came in. But as we interact with you, we want to be changed. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, Jesus said, we're in Luke chapter 9, and I want to refresh your memory a little bit. Last week, Jesus sent out the 12, and he called them also apostles with that. He fed the 5,000. Peter and Herod uh, questioned who, sorry, Herod questioned who Jesus was, and Peter confessed who Jesus is, if you remember, that Jesus is the Christ. And of course, if you don't know what the Christ means, it's the Greek uh, word for Messiah, which is the Hebrew word, Mashiach, or anointed one. And uh, so Peter confessed that Jesus is the anointed one of God, uh, the fulfillment of all the prophecies uh, about the Messiah of his first coming. And after the confession of Peter that Jesus was the Christ, Jesus revealed that he would be killed and raised from the dead. He said in Luke 9, 22, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day, be raised. And so he shared that with the disciples. Now, while uh, they were up in Caesarea Philippi, uh, this is the general area where Peter made this confession of Christ. And I showed you this uh, footage last week of Caesarea Philippi. I just want to remind you you of it here, Um, this drone footage. The, well, we might have it. Just go ahead and play it whenever you're ready. And uh, while he was up there, oh, there we go. So this is Caesarea Philippi, the area. And uh, the reason why I want to draw your attention to this again, just as a remi- by way of a reminder, is that cave is, by the way, a temple. Uh, and then in the bottom of the screen, eventually the actual ruins of Caesarea Philippi will show up. But where I want your attention focused is the hillsides. See all th- these mountains. Um, and that's where I want to I keep that in mind as we go through tonight's message. Okay? All right. So uh, the, the disciples are down in, or up in Caesarea Philippi. It's in the northernmost area of Israel. And that is where Peter confessed Christ. And then we find out Jesus makes this statement in Luke 9, 27. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And we stopped. We didn't answer that question. And so today we're going to pick up at verse 28. Now, I want to say this, verse 28, starting in verse 28, I believe that this answers what Jesus was just telling the disciples that some who are standing there will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So let's look at verse 28 here. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in the glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So Luke's account of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ is a little bit different from the account found in Matthew and Mark. And I'm going to point out some of those differences. But let me just answer the question uh, about Luke 9.27 first, that some standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. I believe that that's fulfilled here in the transfiguration, seeing Christ glorified. Now, there are some other options, but I think that is the 
best explanation for what Jesus had told his disciples. We can ask Jesus about it when we all get to heaven, okay? But uh, I, I believe that that is truly the best explanation. Some say it's speaking of the, uh, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming upon the disciples, empowering them for that. I, I think it has more to do with the uh, transfiguration of Jesus, that, that they got to see Jesus in his glory. But with that said, Luke says, now about eight days after, Mark's gospel says, after six days, Jesus took with him Matthew, uh, uh, Peter, James, and John and, and led them up a high mountain. And we don't, uh, there's not really a discrepancy between the two. Luke says about eight days after, uh, Mark says after six days, and it could literally be both. Uh, it could be that Luke is counting both the days of ministry as well, and he's counting that into the eight-day number, which we'll see in just a moment. So it, it's not really a discrepancy to worry about as far as that term, but what we do have as far as the details goes is he took them up a high mountain, and he, he took Peter, John, and James. He set apart these three from the rest of the 12 who were set apart from the rest the 72, who were set apart from all the other disciples, he took these three, and he wanted to reveal something to these three. So the first question was, does God play favorites? I think it's a poor question. I think God calls people to different ministries. And, and I think the problem is, is we are jealous when people call, when God calls someone to some ministry and and you see it all the time where someone has a, a church or a movement that's going really well and people start talking bad about it. Or they start trying to diminish what God is doing over there at that church or over there at that church. And, and uh, that's not for us. And we'll, we'll get more into that in a moment. So this isn't about God playing favorites. This is about God's plan, his intention, and his choosing and fulfilling that plan. And, and when we let God be king, uh, then it's fine. But when we get our egos in the way and we start getting jealous and we start saying, well, God, you didn't treat me like you treated them, we're the problem. It's not God. And trust me, you'll be a lot happier and a lot more joy-filled if you just let the Lord lead you in all these things. So he set apart James, John, and Peter going up a high mountain. Now, let me talk about the high mountain for a moment. The highest mountain in Israel is Mount Hermon, which is just above this area of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, Mount Hermon measures out about 8,500 feet or so above sea level. That is the highest mountain. What was that? Uh, I, no, I think it's 8,500 feet. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, what'd you get? 9,207, okay, well, Keith is probably right. I just did quick math, so I'm going to give it to Keith. 9,270? All right, so you guys can get on the Google machine and uh, figure that out later. But, uh, but Mount Hermon actually has snow on it. It'll, it gets pretty high. Uh, that is the highest mountain in Israel, but that's not what the text say. The text doesn't say Jesus led them up the highest mountain in Israel. It just says a high mountain. Some speculate that the high mountain was Mount Tabor, which is south of the Sea of Galilee, it's, it's south of, of Galilee, uh, and it doesn't quite fit if that, that is actually where the church of the Transfiguration was built. There's no reason why that's the place. Um, I think it's a crusader-built church, so it's much later on, and I think they just found a mountain. It, Mount Tabor is kind of like this, this hill in the middle of nowhere, and so it's kind of like, hey, there's a high mountain. That must have been the place. Let's build a church. And, uh, but there's no real reason for that when we look at the text and the situation. Uh, but uh, very much, it's very possible those hills you saw in the video, that is the area where Jesus led them up. We don't know for sure, though. But we see that as Jesus brings them up, he is transfigured. Now, Luke doesn't use that term transfigured. Uh, Luke also informs us that Jesus was, went up the mountain to pray. We don't get that in the other Gospels. Luke focuses on prayer. And so we have this scene set, Jesus speaking with, the Lord, with his father. And as 
He was praying, we read, the appearance of his face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. I'll come back to that in just a moment. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they become, became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And so we don't get this detail about their grogginess or the being really tired. So, so we're not really even sure how long they were up on this mountain. But they see him transfigured. They see his glory specifically is what Luke says. They see his glory. And they see these two men speaking with him, Moses and Elijah. Now, what were they speaking about? First of all, it says that they were speaking about his departure. We don't get that in the other Gospels. The word departure in Greek is exodus. Uh, do you hear the word there? Exodus. You get, you get, you guys hear it? Exodus. Okay. Uh, there's an Old Testament book called the Exodus. Uh, and I, you know, obviously this is just a Greek word. Uh, but it means departure, and specifically in the context here, it's departure from the living. And so we've already seen that Jesus has predicted, has told the disciples that he is going to, to be killed and on the third day raised from the dead. Now we see that as he, as he leads them up the high mountain after eight day, uh, uh, about eight days at later, um, that the, he, Moses and Elijah show up, and they're talking to him about this. Now... I love the fact that they, they just recognize them, Moses and Elijah. Oh, there's Moses, there's Elijah. You know, like, you would think, like, do they have a hello my name is? You know, Moses, I don't know. I just, I'm amazed that they just know them. Like, they, they, they figured this out, and they're like, there's Moses, there's Elijah. Wow, this is amazing. And uh, I, I think that that is something, again, that God has revealed. And certainly, I think it gives me a lot of hope for heaven, uh, not worrying about remembering names all the time and, and knowing everyone, and it's going to be great. But, uh, but here, here they are speaking with Jesus. Now, why Moses and Elijah? I, I, we don't know for sure. There's a couple, couple things that, that it could be, a couple reasons for it. Um, one being Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. In a way, it would be like uh, for us as Americans, when you, when you re- pick two presidents to represent America, you'd say George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. Uh, well, I know they're trying to change that nowadays, but, but most of us would all say the two greatest presidents in America, we would say George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and, and some would boast that they were the greatest president. Anyway, uh, <laughs> come on, that was kind of funny. Uh, so, <laughs> so uh, but we would all kind of just recognize that they are are really presidents that represent America and American I, I, ideals and, and those sorts of things. But, but here Moses and Elijah show up representing the law and the prophets, and it's really the sum of Old Testament revelation. They came to meet with Jesus on that Mount of Transfiguration. And so that's one possibility, that just the representation. And I, I think about this, the law and the prophets all lead to the Messiah. They all point to the Messiah. And, and, and it's all about God's redemptive work and plan uh, for mankind, bringing glory to God. We say that all history is his story. So I think it, it, it makes sense that Moses and Elijah would be there speaking to Jesus. Another possibility is both Moses and Elijah have some strange circumstances surrounding their passings. Uh, Moses was, he died before entering into the promised land, but we read this really strange verse in Jude, uh, verse 9. It says, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, if you're reading that going, wait, wait, what, what was that? Why, why is the archangel Michael disputing with the devil about the body of Moses? I have just as many questions. <laughs> we don't know. And I, and I love that when the Bible does this, it just drops this, this fact on you. And you're like, 
wait, that's all I get? I, I, I don't get any context to the fact. I don't get the why. The Nope, we get to wait. But that's a strange circumstance surrounding the, the passing of Moses. And, of course, Elijah has an even stranger circumstance. In, Elijah, in 2 Kings 2, verse 11, we read, And as they still went on and talked, this is Elijah and Elisha, Behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And uh, we see this very strange circumstance. These chariots and a fire and horses of fire and a whirlwind receiving Elijah up into heaven. So that could be also a part of why these two were chosen. I don't know. Last thing I want to draw your attention to is Revelation chapter 11. And you, we don't have time tonight to read through the whole passage because I won't finish. Uh, but if you go to Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 through 13, we read about two prophets that are coming during the great tribulation. And they're given authority to prophesy and, and uh, to Israel specifically about the Messiah. And so we see that coming in and some speculate that these two prophets are representative of Moses and Elijah. I don't know. We'll find out. From we'll, we'll have a good seat to watch everything. Anyway, so, so Jesus is transfigured, and that's really the point of this. The point is not to focus on Moses or Elijah. In fact, that's where Peter makes a mistake. Peter says, oh, it's good to be here. This is good. Good that we're here. I, I'm so blessed to be here, God. Tell you what, let me build three tents. Now, I love how gracious God is in our stupidity. And our ignorance. Because God doesn't just like strike Peter with a lightning bolt, you idiot. Why are you trying to worship these guys when you're trying to should be worshiping Jesus? No, God just begins speaking. <laughs> he just kind of interrupts Peter. And we read about that in the other gospels. In the other gospels, it says, while he was still speaking. In this gospel, it says, not knowing what he said, Luke kind of covers for Peter, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid, and they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, uh, my chosen one, listen to him. And so Peter just gets interrupted on his, what he was about to say. Now, why was Peter talking about building tabernacles or tents, three tents? Well, uh, tents were, uh, obviously the tabernacle of God was a meeting place with God. And I think it's possible that Peter was saying, let's just set up a meeting place. We'll just tell everybody, come on up here afterwards. We'll all worship here. This will be a new meeting place other than the temple. Maybe it's, that's possible. I don't know. Maybe it's possible that he was saying, hey, I'm not going anywhere. You guys don't go anywhere. Let's just stay here forever. Right? But there's a reason why this is important. Peter is, again, in, uh, interjecting his plan into God's plan. God's plan is Jesus is going to go down this mountain, and from the point he starts walking down this mountain, he's walking toward Jerusalem. So we're, we're not even halfway through Luke's gospel, but we are definitely at the pinnacle moment of Jesus' ministry as he starts making his way to Jerusalem to be crucified and on the third day raised from the dead. And so uh, we see that Peter, as he's uh, saying these things, ready to to just build tabernacles for everybody, build tents for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. He's interrupted, and the voice comes from heaven saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. There's the instruction, listen to him. And I think still today we make that mistake. We start speaking, and we don't do enough listening to Jesus. We start coming up with our plans, and we don't listen to Jesus we start deciding what we believe is right, what we believe is good, and we don't listen to Jesus. Jesus is our Lord. And there's the instruction from heaven. It's Jesus who pleases God. In fact, we read that in the other transfiguration accounts. Uh, in the other transfiguration accounts, it says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Luke includes my chosen one or anointed one. Listen to him. And it is Jesus who pleases God. So if we want to please God, we need to listen to Jesus. Then finally, the event ends. 
Jesus was found alone. Now notice they kept silent and told no one about, the, uh, about in, in those days anything of what they had seen. And this is based on the instruction of Jesus. The other gospels tell us as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus strictly warned them, tell no one until after the Son of Man has risen from the dead. All right, let's go on to verse 37. Oh, let me say one thing before we start reading 37. Would you have liked to have been there on that mountain? How many would, would just like have been super stoked to be up there? Some, some, some were like, uh, I don't really care. It's not a big deal. No. <laughs> How many of you guys would love to have been up there on that mountain and witnessed those events? Yeah. I mean, this is a pinnacle moment, a mountaintop experience with God. God is revealing glory. And I don't blame Peter at all for speaking up and getting excited because I get really excited when the Lord meets me. But we're going down the mountain now. And let's see what happens. Verse 37. On the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him. And he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that, that he foams at the mouth and, shatter, and, and shatters him. And will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was <clears throat> coming, the demon threw him into, uh, on the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished. At the majesty of God. And so we go from this mountaintop experience down to a demonic encounter. Isn't that such a model of our lives? Oftentimes we, we, we meet the Lord places. The Lord ministers to us in a special way. We might have time in the prayer closet, uh, time and just where the Lord has blessed us so richly and we're 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 walking on the top of the mountain but as we come down we meet great oppression opposition trial whatever it is we we meet these things that that uh, are the effects of a sinful and fallen world and it's it, it comes against us hard and I, I just see this, this as a, a, a perfect picture of the believer's life as they come down this mountain. Now, notice that this man, he says, I, I need help. I beg you, look at my son. Look upon my son. That idea is show your mercy to, to my son. That, that's what, what he needs. He goes on to say that this, this uh, demon, demonic spirit, seizes him. And suddenly he cries out, he convulses. It sounds in a way like an epileptic episode. But Jesus doesn't say he needs just to be healed of sickness. But Jesus even recognizes this is a demonic oppression. The way it's affecting him, the demon is affecting him. It, it, it's causing him to have these seizures and, and be thrown around and, and beat up. Now, can you imagine watching that? Your child, I mean, if anyone's had a child who was sick, and, and especially a child who was really sick, and you've been through that experience of seeing your child sick and the worry it brings. I, I remember a time when um, Claire had to be hospitalized for asthma, and that was, a, 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 man, I, that was so stressful because I couldn't hold her. She was, she was really little at the time, and they put her in this uh, crib type thing in, in the hospital. She was... I think she was like three years old or something like that. But they don't want three-year-olds walking around through the hospital. So they put them in. It looks like a little gel hospital bed. And, uh, but, man, she, she was rushed there because she couldn't breathe. And then as a teenager, she went into anaphylaxis. And I remember rushing her to the hospital. And she was saying to me, Dad, I don't want to die. And as we were talking about it, I could see that she was going downhill really quick. There I am on the way to the hospital, driving as fast as I can, having a talk with my daughter about, it's okay. Jesus has you. 
and we just prayed. I learned a lot that night about anaphylaxis. I, I didn't, never knew how it, was, how it showed in my daughter, Claire. Now I know. But any one of us who's had a daughter or a child sick, and I can't even imagine, that was one event in my life with my daughter. But this was an ongoing episodic event. And, and so we see that as uh, this man says, look on my son. I beg you, look on my son. And he says, look, I, I've tried to ask your disciples... I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Now look at Jesus' answer here. O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. Now, when we first read this, it doesn't seem like a very compassionate answer from Jesus, does it? Like, I, I don't see it as compassion. I'm like reading it going, whoa, it's kind of harsh. Like, I, I totally identify with the man saying, please, I need you. In fact, that seems like very faithful to do that. But he, hear this out for a moment. Luke 9.1. He called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Luke 9.1. Jesus called the 12 together, gave them authority over all demons, and to cure diseases. And the, the man said, I, I asked your disciples, but they could not. So Jesus comes down the mountain, and the disciples met with demonic resistance, didn't have the ability to do it. But God had already empowered them, He had already given them the authority. So where lies the problem? It's the disciples, yeah, the faith. The faith of the disciples. In fact, Jesus actually quotes something here that is worth noting. In Deuteronomy 32, 4 through 5, Moses is, is speaking about God. Deuteronomy 32, 4 through 5, do you got that? There we go. The rock, his work, the rock is God. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. Pause there for a moment, Addy, on, on verse 4. Now, Moses is speaking about God. Notice his characteristics. He's faithful. He's without iniquity. He's just. He's upright. He's perfect. Okay, he's a rock. Okay, now Moses is going to turn his attention to the people of Israel. Verse 5. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked and twisted generation. See, the people of Israel were uh, faith, not practicing faith. God brought them out to Sinai to meet him, to be his people, but they weren't receiving him. And the same thing was happening with Jesus, and we're going to see that He's going to deal with rejection from here on out. We'll see a lot of rejection of Jesus. So when Jesus quotes, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? This is a statement about their rejection of the power that he has already granted to them. That's what the statement's about. The other gospels, we read that the, the man says, I believe. The father says, I believe but help me with my unbelief. I, I, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. And I think we can all identify with that. We've all been there with like, I believe God, but, but I'm sorry. And we're in that situation, we, but there's this doubt in me. There's a part of me that just, I, I, I believe you. I, I, believe, I want to believe you fully, but there's just a part of me that has unbelief. And, and so... The disciples having seen God. Now remember, they went out. Jesus sent them out and they had marvelous report when they, about what they did when they came back. Then Jesus feeds the 5,000 and, and Jesus had tested that faith. And of course they said, Lord, send them away. And the Lord said, no, 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 you feed them. You give them something. And they said, we can't. So Jesus said, well, uh, bring those loaves and fishes here. And, and then they were left all holding a basket of bread and fish a basket of leftovers, each one of the disciples. Then they have the great confession of Christ by Peter. 
which is a great act of faith that, that God revealed to Peter. Then we see that this great transfiguration moment where they see the glory of God. Now they come down the mountain and they're tested again. And they're failing. And so Jesus says, bring your son here. And so Jesus says, while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed the, the, the boy. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, gave him back to his father, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. I don't think Jesus, uh, with his, Jesus' statement, he had no intention of making the boy suffer. In fact, he came to set free the captives, and that's exactly what he did for the boy. But he certainly had an intention to challenge the disciples about their faith. And friends, I got to say this about faith. Faith is something practiced and exercised. It's not something that's easy. Faith in God is believing the calling of God, the promises of God, and responding with an attitude of dependence. And that's hard. That's difficult times. But it's something that we need to practice. And so did the disciples. So we go on from there. Verse, uh, toward the latter part of verse 43, it says, But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. That's the second time now he tells them about his death. Of course, they also saw that Moses and Elijah were talking to him about his death. Verse 45, But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the same. And there they are afraid again. Verse 46, an argument among those, uh, to, um, among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now, now understand this. We see a whole lot of failure in this chapter. Okay, we saw three get invited up to the top of a mountain. Because three got invited, but there was a whole lot of failure. They're saying, Hey, who do you think is the, the best among us? Who's the greatest? You gotta, you gotta just imagine that Jesus is going, oh, come on, guys. <laughs> really? But he's so gracious with us. So he takes the opportunity to teach. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by, the, by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you also is the one who is great. There's a childlike faith there, but also just the idea is that, that you are giving importance to the least. You're giving priority and position to the least. Servant leadership in the kingdom of God. Whoever receives him who sent me. Oh, sorry. Uh, whoever receives the child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So, verse 46. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. And, I, you know, Luke doesn't tell us how immediate after the fact that the statement by John is, but I, I kind of tend to think that, that as Jesus is teaching about this child, John pipes up and goes, oh, hey, but I tried to do this for you, God. <laughs> Speaking of, 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 of uh, not receiving people or not, uh, we saw someone casting out a demon in your name. And the question is, who is actually opposing the work of God? See, the disciples start to think that they are the chosen people. And obviously they've been chosen for ministry. But they are the ones who have been given this authority and nobody else gets it. Only us. Okay, they're the ones who didn't have the faith to set the boy free from this demon. Yet they come across this man who's not one of the twelve. And is trying to cast out demons in Christ's name. And they go, hey, you're not allowed to do that, buddy. Who told you you could do that? That man is doing the very thing that the disciples wouldn't do. He's trying to exercise faith. 
doing it in Jesus' name. Now, I think this also goes for sometimes we attack the church or we attack people uh, that are proclaiming Jesus uh, more than we ought. I'll tell you that much. A lot of times the church is really critical of things that are bringing attention or glory to Jesus because we're, it's not done in the perfect setting, the perfect way. Uh, you know, the movie Jesus Revolution came out, and I heard all sorts of criticisms about it. And first I was like, well, it's a movie, okay? So I don't know who goes to a movie to learn the Bible because that's not the way you're going to learn the Bible. But nonetheless, let me tell you what I think about the movie The Jesus Revolution. My daughter went to see it. She was moved to tears. She went and invited all of her friends to go back the next day to see the movie. Then she went again a third time, and then she went again a fourth time. So as far as I'm concerned, there was something about that movie that really provoked faith in my daughter to bring friends to hear about Jesus. (laughs) I'm going to go with it. I'm happy about it. Uh, People get critical of the Harvest Crusades. Well, you know, that's a false form of worship. That's just entertainment. It's just candy for people. It's not the real meat and potatoes. Listen, friends, I'm so excited that there's a giant event that's proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Yeah, I know that that Greg's not going to get into the Greek wording of this or that, and he's not going to get deep into the Bible. But you know what he is going to do is he's going to proclaim Jesus. And I'll tell you this about the Harvest Crusade, and I've seen this in Africa. I've seen this many places. When the Spirit of God is moving, when the Spirit of God has anointed something to call people to repentance, you can basically say, hey, want to accept Jesus? And everybody goes, yes. And they come. And I believe, I really believe that Greg could get up there and say, Jesus died for you, believe in Jesus, and he would have people swarming the floor because there's an anointing over that place. So I I think that this passage really teaches us to be careful about being critical about those who are doing works in the name of Jesus and not being criticizing all these things. Um, Certainly we have to watch out for false teachers and false prophets who would lead people astray, but this one who is uh, casting out demons in Jesus' name was not doing that very thing. And so Jesus says, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Verse 51. Um, hold on, I've got to make sure i got this. Yeah. Okay, verse 51. This is the beginning of all the rejection of Jesus. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell, tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> but he turned and rebuked them and they went to another, on to another village. <laughs> I love this. The sons of thunder, James and John, as the other gospel reveals about them. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Notice that the Samaritans take issue with Jesus because he's headed to Jerusalem. That's what their issue is. And I'm sure the Samaritans already knew who Jesus was. Remember he had that encounter with the the Samaritan woman at the well. And and he had already had that encounter. And I'm sure people were hearing about Jesus already. But Jesus was headed to Jerusalem. And the Jews and the Samaritans were not friends. And so they reject Jesus as a result I I believe of their scruples with the Jews. This is racism. There it is. It's the the Samaritans rejecting Jesus because of the Jews. Uh, They they hated each other, the Jews and the Samaritans. And the saddest part about this is Jews would go out of their way to get around and away from a Samaritan village. They They would go way out of their way. And now you have this Jew... Jesus Christ and his disciples seeking to come through your village and include you in this plan. But they reject him. Now, James, or James and John, they show up to, to, to practice faith. I'm sure they're still a little bit sore about not being able to have the demon come out of the, the boy and, and arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And then, of course, they tried to stop the this one from casting out demons. So they're, they're kind of batting 
batting pretty poor. Uh, what is that? They're batting 100 or whatever. Is that the term? Marlene, you would know this. Is it batting 100? Oh. Uh, anyway. <laughs> so, um, anyway, they're, bat- they're batting really poor. Uh, I-, I can't believe I messed up that expression. For some reason, I just lost it. But, uh, but as they come to Jesus, they say, okay, Lord, how about we call fire down on this village? We'll just destroy them. Notice how they have faith now. They have faith to destroy, but not faith to save. They don't have faith to love, but faith to, to, to curse. They're like, oh, we want to do something powerful. It's the wrong attitude. As they were going along the road, I'm going to do it. I'm going to finish this. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, Follow you wherever you go. I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will allow I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And so again, we, get, we continue with this theme of the rejection of Jesus. Now, this rejection looks a little different. The, first, the rejection of the Samaritan village was, don't come through here. Road is blocked. You're not welcome. Okay. This rejection comes in the, the, the form of, oh, I'll follow you. Notice the first, the first one says, I'll follow you wherever you go. But Jesus responds, look, I have nowhere to lay my head. Wait a minute. We're camping? Forget this. I'm out. We're going to be uncomfortable? Uh, I don't want to be a part of that. And he rejects Jesus. Then the other said, Jesus said, follow me. Now notice you notice what that, the first one said, I'll follow you. And then when he found out what it was going to take of him, he says, I don't want to do it. Now Jesus actually calls someone, you follow me. And that man says, well, first let me go bury my father. Now, there's a problem with this because if his father was already dead, he would be well under the process of doing this. And so it's very possible he could be saying, well, let me wait for my inheritance. Let me get my affairs in order. Or it's possible he's saying, my dad is sick or almost dead. I, I, whenever I read this, I think of that Monty Python when they're going through the town saying, bring out your dad. And he said, I'm not dead yet, the old, old man. And he said, well, you, you will be soon. Just get on the cart, you know, with all the dead people. I always think of that. That's, I don't know why. I probably shouldn't have done that because now I distracted you all. So, yeah, sorry. But, but... Uh, but anyway, so, so here he says, uh, um, let, me, let me first bury my father. Now notice the priority of the kingdom of God. And that's what the issue here is. Leave the dead to bury the dead. Do you, do you get the, the word play there? Leave the dead to bury the dead. Look, if you're going to be spiritually dead, stay and bury the dead. But if you're going to be spiritually alive, you come follow me and make me a priority in your life. That's the word play there. Uh, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Put this as a priority to you. And there again is Jesus' graciousness. Verse 61, yet another said, now we have a person coming to Jesus again saying, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And this this. Jesus' response is revealing to the intent of their hearts. Remember earlier in, in the chapter we read that Jesus knowing their hearts, when, when they were arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus understood their hearts. He understood the intent. And so each response reveals these people's heart that, that when they say, I will follow you, there's a little bit of disingenuousness in them. That they're not really ready to follow. And so this man says, well, let me first go do this. Let me first go say farewell. And the idea is if Jesus calls, don't put it off till tomorrow. Don't put it off for the next day. Don't, don't put it off for some time later. You follow. You follow Jesus. 
And so Jesus gives this statement, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And, and the illustration is really simple to understand. I'm sure you guys all have done this before. You've been out there with a team of oxen moving a plow through the field. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> no. But the idea is like if, if you're looking backwards, you're going to have really crooked lines through the whole field. You've just messed up the whole field if you're constantly looking back. And, of course, there's so much in the way of spiritual application of this. If you say, I'll follow you, Jesus, but you're constantly looking backward to sin, you're going to have a messed up field. If you say, I'll follow you, Jesus, but you're constantly looking backward to what you want to do in your plan, you have a really messed up field. Faith is responding to Jesus. He calls you, listen. You you respond to him with a dependence and actions of obedience, and so this is this is really the the test here. Is will you put your hand to the plow and follow Jesus? That's the idea here. There's no turning back. I love that old hymn. I've decided to follow Jesus. There's no turning back. No turning back. That is a wonderful statement. And of course, earlier in this chapter. We read, anyone who would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's a call to to die. Because forever loses his life, for my sake, will live. And whoever tries to keep his life will die. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word tonight. And and, uh, Lord, we're so encouraged by your graciousness as you interact with those who respond poor. And Lord, I want to right now confess to you, I've responded poor. If you're in this room tonight and you have been looking back, you've been looking back to sin or you've been looking for other things, you confess that to the Lord right now. Lord Jesus, forgive me. I want to follow you. Lord, I don't want to be the dead burying the dead, but I want to be alive. I want to have life. God, we're so grateful to you that you have equipped, you have called, and you have empowered. And we believe you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just May God just take you, fill you, use you for his good pleasure and purpose, wherever he takes you this week. Fill you up in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Rick. Wow. That was beautiful.